This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, Redemption. My name is Warren. I'm one of your pastors, and I'm glad to be with you today as we are continuing on in our series through the book of Revelation. You know, there are so many moments in my life where I look back on, so many memories where I look back on and I go, what in the world was I thinking? What in the world was I thinking? You guys are aware of many of them because I usually share them whenever I'm up here. And so they're really convenient when it comes time to preach. And today I draw from a memory from the year of around 2013. And so let me tell you about it. Um, Years 2013, had just graduated college and I'm working for uh, this like small moving company working in their operations department. And one day, right, our, the boss who also happens to be the owner, he comes and he's like, hey, do you guys want to hang out on my boat this weekend? And so I'm like, of course, like why do you even have to ask me? You don't have to ask me twice. Um, and so weekend comes and we get out on the boat and we're docked on some, uh, this river and there's like Food, or, food is going, drinks are flowing. I'm taking selfies. I'm like, yo, yacht life, like hot hashtag. And just kind of like making sure that it's only me in it so that the people watching my story could be like, well, does he have a boat? Like maybe he knows Diddy or something. Um, and so, you know, we're hanging, everything's going really well. And then one of my friends, he was a coworker and a friend, his name is Sean. And Sean goes, he goes to like the edge of the boat, right? And I watch as Sean jumps right into the water. He jumps right into like the river where we were hanging out. And he's just having a good time. Like dude was an incredible swimmer. So everyone's looking at him like, oh my gosh, look at Sean. Like dude is swimming like crazy. That's what's up. And I'm looking at that and I'm like, well, shoot, I know how to swim too. I know there's that stereotype that black people don't know how to swim. <laughs> but listen, that doesn't apply to me, all right? My parents made sure that we were in the YMCA as kids, all right? And I was a certified shark at the YMCA, I'll have you know. Um, and so I'm looking at that and I'm like, shoot, I wanna swim too. And so I go and I jump right into the water. I jump right in there and I'm treading water. I'm putting all my YMCA training, right? And to, to practice applying it. People are like, oh shoot, there goes Warren. Dude, black people can't swim, that's what's up. Um, and I'm in there and I'm having a good time, right? And then I noticed something started to happen. Something started to happen because what started to happen was I realized that there was a distance that was beginning to increase between me and the boat. I realized that slowly I was drifting further and further away from the boat. There was a current in the water at work that was causing me to drift from the boat. It was causing me to be in some grave danger if something didn't happen. Life was in some risk if that drift continued. And I think that's a compelling image for us today as we dive into our passage, the passage at hand. Today, we are going to examine ourselves. We're going to examine our role as the people of God as we look through the lens of Jesus's words to the church in Pergamum. And we're going to explore this question, right? What was the cultural current happening in their day? that had infiltrated the church and was causing it to dangerously move in a particular direction. What was that current? What can we learn as we look at this church? And so that's what we'll be exploring today. So before we do that, would you join me in prayer? God, we 
Thank you for your word today. God, we thank you that each week we're able to come together and hear your word for it to inform and to shape us and to guide us and tell us how we are to live as your faithful people. So I pray today would be another opportunity for that. Uh, Our ears are open. Our hearts are ready to receive what you have to say to us today. And so, Lord, speak now. Spirit of God, move. In your name, amen. Okay, you can open up your Bibles with me to Revelation 2, and we are going to be starting off in verses 12 through 16. I'm going to reread it now, and it'll be on the screen as well. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I love the call and response I was having with that baby there. That was great. So here's the first thing that we see as we dive into our past. The first thing Jesus is warning the church against. He says this, guard against the drift. Guard against the drift. Guard against the current that is happening around you. So one of the things we want to do, right, before we get into the specific words of Jesus is we want to take a moment to zoom out, to step back, and just to look at these different cities that these churches inhabited, right? Because as we understand the cities, we can understand Jesus's words to the church a lot better. So John did that last week as we looked at Smyrna, right? And so we're going to do the same with Pergamum. So what was Pergamum like? What was the ancient city of Pergamum like? Well, Pergamum was a very prominent, wealthy city in antiquity. It was one that the emperor was very proud about. It was so prominent, in fact, that it was the original capital of the Asia province of Rome. It was later replaced by Ephesus because of that city's location to a sea. But Pergamum was really prominent in its own right. It had this like, amazing library in it that actually was only rivaled by the Library of Alexandria in Egypt, which is one of the most famous libraries in history. And so a city that's very proud, a city that's very wealthy, a city that really prides itself on scholarship. And also, as we look at the words of Jesus, he actually tells us something that's really important about this feature, right? Because he calls the city, calls the city the place where Satan's throne dwells. What is he alluding to there? Well, if you went to Pergamum, right, Pergamum was like the Las Vegas strip of idol worship. Every which way you turn, you'd find some temple to a pagan god. Right? You'd look up and you'd see the altar to the Greek god Goose. Goose. Zeus. He's fake anyway. Call him Goose. <laughs> you see the altar to the, the Greek god Zeus. You look to your right and you see a temple to the god Dionysus, who they believe was the god of fertility, right? You'd see the imperial cult worship, the emperor worship that was very common all throughout Rome. And really one of the most famous false gods, pagan gods in the city was the god Asclepios, right? Who we might be familiar with his symbol today as it's symbolized, he's symbolized by a snake on a staff, right? Um, And 
The reason why he was so famous is that people would come from all around the Roman Empire and they would come to his temple and they'd have snakes placed on them, believing that that would bring them healing. But really, it was just weird and satanic, right? And so every single which way you turn, right, you'd find temples, you'd find idol worship all throughout the city of Pergamum, right? And as we look back at Jesus's words, there's also something else we can know about Pergamum, right? Jesus calls himself the one who has the two-edged sword in his mouth. The reason why he calls himself that is because he was challenging the authority of the governing body, uh, the, the Roman proconsul, which was headquartered for the region of Asia. It was headquartered in Pergamum. And the members of that council who had much power in their hands, right? They would wear these vests and these vests would have a two-edged sword on them. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, church, I see you. I see the specific environment and situation that you are facing. I see all the activity that's happening around you, all the satanic activity happening all around you. And I also see how you may be living in fear, right? You have this pro-council, this governing body, right, in your city who feels like they have so much power over your life. And he says, you are about to hear from the one, right? Though you may have many judges in your town, you're about to hear from the one judge who has authority over the entirety of human history. And so what does he say to his church? With all of that laid, what does he say to his church? What do we see his words are to the church? Well, first one he goes, the first thing he does is he offers encouragement. Right? He actually commends them. He says, I see the ways that you have been holding fast to my name. Right? He acknowledges just the pressure of the environment that they're in. He says, I see all the ways you've been holding fast to my name and holding on. And then what else does he say? He says, I also see the way that you are suffering. I also see the way that you've experienced loss. You've lost someone by the name of Antipas. It was so hard to not say Antupak. I don't know why, you know, it's just in my mind. I just want to keep saying Antipak, but Antipas, right? And Antipas was someone like John uh, referenced last week who was a martyr, right? He was killed for his faith. Church history tells us that he was placed inside of a bronze bull and that bull was lit on fire and he was sacrificed to a God in their city. And so they've been grieving his loss. This leader who meant very much to them, he, they've been grie grieving his loss. And Jesus says, I see it. I see you. I see your pain. But you see, Jesus doesn't stop there. Right? Jesus loves us far too much. He loves his church far too much that if there is a way that sin is creeping up on them, right, he has to acknowledge it. He has to bring it to our attention. And so he does that for the church. He says there are some ways right, that you are fighting in one end but exposed on another. There are some ways that you are fighting in one end, but fading in another. And so what's the way that he says the church is fading? What's the thing that is causing the church to drift? Thing is, is that false teaching had infiltrated the church. False teaching had infiltrated the church. We see that what Jesus says Right, in verse 14, what does he say? He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So what's this story that Jesus is alluding to here? Well, to get the context of this, we got to go back in Scripture. we got to go to the Old Testament book of Numbers. And there we'll find the story of Balaam and Balak. I'll give you a brief synopsis. How it goes is that there's this uh, king. He's the king of Moab. His name is Balak, 
right? And Balak is the king of one of the nations that the people of Israel have to pass on their way from Egypt to the promised land. So Balak, he sees the people of Israel. He sees their numbers coming to him, coming towards his direction, and he shook, right? The Bible actually says that. It says that he shook. Look it up. He shook, right? He's all shook. He's afraid. And so what he does is he goes to a prophet in the region by the name of Balaam. And Balaam's name actually means destroyer of people. And so he's like, this has got to be the guy, right? Like, that's his name. And so he goes to him and he says, can you curse these people, right? Thinking that cursing them was going to stop their forward progress, right? Was going to end the threat that he felt to his people. And so he goes to Balaam and he's like, Balaam, I'm going to give you a bunch of money, curse these people. But Balaam's unable to do it, right? We see in scripture that Balaam tries to go and curse God's people and he's on his donkey. And his donkey's like the first person in scripture to, and in human history to be like, nope, not going to do it. He says that, nope. Not doing it, right? And so the problem was for Balaam is that he wanted that money that was offered to him, right? He wanted that yacht life for himself, even though he was in the wilderness, right? And so he goes, all right, I can't curse them, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how to lead God's people astray. I'm going to show you how to move God's people's hearts away from him. And what was his method? His method was sexual immorality. See, what happened was God's people were enticed, right, to sleep. The, the, the men of Israel slept with the women of Moab. And the thing is not just the actions they took with their bodies, but it's the practices of their bodies that changed the positions of their hearts. The practices of their bodies changed the positions of their hearts away from the God who had saved them and who demanded their exclusive worship towards the gods of Moab. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is telling his church, he's issuing this warning to this church, alerting them that, see, the satanic activity that's happening outside the doors, right? The satanic activity that's happening all around you, the enemy is relentless. He just doesn't stop and wait for Christians to go outside to attack. No, he comes to church. And when he comes to church, he doesn't wear red horns and carry a pitchfork and wear a red suit, right? He comes in the form of lies and half-truths and false things that cause believers to question God's goodness, care, control, and design for creation. He's been using that same tactic from the very beginning. And so in Pergamum, right, there are those who are teaching that when it comes to sexual sin, that God's grace covers it, and so it doesn't matter what we do. Right, that was the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Because we've received God's words, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. And what we have to recognize, right, is Jesus is warning the church, is that when the enemy advances, when the enemy moves, he often doesn't move in leaps and bounds. He moves in inches and increments. There's a slow drift that happens. And what we end up with is like me when I put an address in my GPS and I go from point A to point B. And if you ask me at point B how I got from point A, I'd be like, I don't even know. I've got no idea. Wasn't paying attention. Was listening to, I don't know, the new Drake album or something. I don't know. No. Taylor Swift, of course. 
But it's like me when I was in the water, right? I'm in the water and the current just started to move me from place to place, right? From the safety of the boat, deeper and further into the water. And if you consider, why did I jump off that? But well, I did it because I looked at someone who seemed like he was having the time of his life. And I was like, hey, if he can do it, why not me? Right? If he's doing it, why not me? And so I jumped in that water thinking that I was going to experience the best that freedom had to offer. And really, it was leading me to death. Before I knew it, I was being moved by a current. In church, I think the current in our culture around sexuality is one that we have to be on guard against today. There's a drift that we have to be on guard against today. Today, we're going to be talking about sexual sin, right? And I'm, as I talk about it, right, what I'm not talking about is sexual sin or, or, or way that our sexuality is expressed because of abuse or trauma in our past. I'm talking about teaching, teaching today. And as we look at the Bible, or as we look at Scripture and what it has to say in this specific area, it has a lot to say, right? Over and over and over and over in Scripture, we see God give commands on how we are to live. And I think it's because it's one of those areas where the enemy can easily carry out some of his most destructive work. No question. We know that sexual sin grieves the spirit of God because we reject his parameters to fulfill our pleasure. It's often the high point of idolatry, right? As we enthrone our needs, we enthrone our pleasure and ourselves above the commands of God. Here's what I know in my own story. I know there's no coincidence in my own story that the times where I have felt the furthest from God is when I was struggling the most with sexual sin. Times when I felt the furthest from God is when I was struggling the most with sexual sin. And I don't think that's any coincidence, right? It's no coincidence because what I was really trying to do, right? What I was really doing was raising the value on my needs and lowering the value on God's voice. And that's what it does. It dulls his voice in our lives. It warps our relationships with other people. That's the time when I was most willing to play with my theology, right? And question everything because I was looking for a justification for the shame I was feeling. And so we see in scripture, there's a definition that God has given to how sexuality should be expressed. And what scripture defines sexual morality is any sexual activity that happens outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Over and over, we see in scripture, God's, the, the call for God's people to flee sexual immorality, flee it. He says, uh, Paul says what to the church in Corinth, it shouldn't even be named among you. So the Bible speaks very clearly on these areas. It speaks very clearly to this topic. But still even today, we can experience a drift. Still even today, we can experience a drift when it comes to our views and practices around sexuality. So what are some ways that that happens? What are some ways? I can name a couple today. I think one thing we must acknowledge is the truth that the content that we consume shapes our morality. The content that we consume shapes our morality. The shows we watch, the podcasts we listen to, the YouTubers we listen to, they shape our imagination, right? Love is blind, right? Shapes our imagination. Some of y'all are like, please, please, I'm just watching it for research purposes. I know. 
I know, you're like, let me just get to this reunion and then we'll be fine. <laughs> These shows shape our imagination. And they shape us especially as we often ingest and listen to them mindlessly. Do we, when we do that, do we honestly think that they are just leaving us in a neutral position? No. There's a formation happening. There's a slow drip. There's a molding that is happening to us. And what do these shows and podcasts and all these different means often teach us? Well, they teach us like when it comes to ideas around or views around sexuality, that we just need to be open and accepting and it's totally up to us. That it's totally a subjective part of our lives. And so they teach us things like when it comes to pornography, that it's just a perfectly and normal and healthy sexual expression. Teach us that like we should just expect premarital sex, right? Like that should just be an expectation when it comes to dating. We should accept that in Christian dating that there's always going to be a tension and fight against the line. It also also teaches us that when it comes to our sexuality and our sexual views, that they're not open for discussion. No one can actually tell us or call us to something higher. And while I often see this approach or hear this approach in the world of just being open and accepting, as I search the the pages of Scripture, it's not one that I see there. It's not one that I see there. What I see in Scripture is that we are called to be open and testing. What we are called to be is open and reflecting. What we are called to be is to take every thought captive in order to be obedient to Christ. What we are called to do is to bring our lives, bring our thoughts, bring every part of us to the x-ray of Scripture and allow it to examine us and call us up into alignment with the good creation, the good design that God has created. What else? Think something else that can cause the drift. It actually comes from a good place. Right, there is actually a desire that's good, that there's a desire in us often, right, to connect and build bridges with those who are outside the faith. Build bridges with those maybe who have even been hurt by the church in some way. Maybe if you're like me, I grew up in a very strict Pentecostal church, and I want, you know, to connect with people to know, like, for them to feel like the love of God, right, maybe who have been ostracized by the church in some way. So it's a good thing, right? We don't want people sometimes to interpret Christianity through like churchianity stuff, right? And so there's a good desire there to build bridges. And I think that I want to emphasize that that is a commendable thing as we like strive to know and love our neighbors. That is an absolutely commendable thing. However, here's the crucial part when it comes to bridge building that we must remember. Is that kingdom bridge building can reach a destination without sacrificing its origin. It reaches a destination without sacrificing its origin and foundation. What I'm saying is that bridge building cannot be a justification to dismiss the commands of God. Cannot. Because Christ, not the bridge, must remain enthroned. So what do we do, right? If we want to take these efforts, what do we do? I think the best thing we can do as we pursue this, the most loving thing we can do 
as we pursue building bridges with those, helping people to experience and know the love of God, the best thing we could do is to be extremely clear, extremely clear about what we believe. Clarity is kindness. Avoiding or altering God's word in an effort to build a bridge is never the answer. And here's the truth when it comes to God's word. God's word is a gift to be shared and not a curse to be hidden. It's a gift to be shared, not a curse to be hidden. And God's word is kindness. Like, do we sometimes think that we are like more kind than God? His word is kindness to us. Truth of the matter is, is that when we undermine God's foundation for sexuality, you're not building a bridge. You're creating an obstacle. Creating an obstacle. Creating a stumbling block. Because here's what sexual immorality is in truth. Sexual immorality in truth is destruction masquerading as freedom. Destruction masquerading as freedom. That's why we see Jesus' response to it. What does he say? He says, I'm coming to war against it. And he comes to war against it because he loves his church too much to see it destroyed by sexual sin. And so he comes not in a, not in a, a way or fashion of like offensively beating down people who disagree with him. It's defensive love for the church that he loves. He comes and brings judgment for the church that he gave his life for. So the warning to the church in Pergamum and the challenge for us today is to not drift in this area, to stay on guard against the teaching we're listening to, to bring it to the truth of Scripture and allow Scripture to be what guides our conversations. Don't compromise. Remember what Paul said to the church. What did he say? You have been bought with a price. Offer or glorify God with your body something that Jesus calls us all to a higher standard on. Remain faithful. So the question coming out of that is, how do we do it? How do we do that? How can we look to Jesus to give us what we need to stay faithful? Well, let's pick up in Revelation 2. I'm going to read verse 17. and Again, it will be on the screen for you to follow along. It says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, and no one knows except the one who receives it. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus assures the church, right, as they turn from sin and turn towards him, that he is going to provide what they need. He says, I have what you need. I have what you need. What we'll see at the end of each letter to the churches, what we'll observe is that Jesus says something very specific to the situation the different churches are facing. So he says to Pergamum, he says, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. And what do, we, what do we know about manna from Scripture? Manna was the food that was provided to the Israelites in the desert, right, that allowed them to be endure and strengthened through their wilderness, right, their, their journeys in the wilderness. the so food that only God could provide. And in verse 17, he says, I'm going to give you a white stone with a new name written on it that only him and the recipient will know. And the white stone in ancient Aries culture meant a ton of things, right? It, meant, it could have meant um, ticket to a, a ticket to a banquet, 
a vote for acquittal by a jury, victory for an athlete, freedom from enslavement. And I guess what we can surmise out of that is a white stone's a really good thing, right? <laughs> it did a number of th- great things for you there. So a very good thing to have in their day was a white stone. And as we think about all those implications or all those things that a white stone meant, right, we can look at the gospel and see so many parallels, right, to what we've received from Jesus, right? We can say yes and amen, you've done so much for us. But I want to get really specific today. What does that white stone mean? What is what Jesus uh, promises to us? What can we expect as we guard against drifting in the area of sexuality and sexual sin? Well, I know this. When I was drifting, right, when I was in the water and I was drifting away from, from the boat, kicking and swimming harder was actually not going to help me. Right? All it was, all it was going to do was like exhaust me and tired me out. And if somebody didn't come in and rescue me, I was literally gonna be dead in the water. And what happened was that there was a Jewish man who dove into the water and he saved and he brought me back to safety and he provided exactly what I needed to recover and to continue living And This one wasn't Jesus, it was my boss, E.L. I later found out that him and Sean were like former Israeli Defense Force, so they're swimming probably their swim training probably far surpassed mine from the YMCA is my assumption, but I could be wrong, you know? But the truth is we need someone to come in and rescue us. We need someone to come and give us exactly what we need. And Jesus says, I have it. I have it. I have what you need to be able to overcome, church. I have what you need to be able to remain faithful, church. I have what you need to be able to endure, church, and not be overcome by sin. How so? Well, he says he has the strength that we need. As we look at the hidden manna, right, we see the strength that is provided to us, a strength that goes beyond the strength that we have in ourselves. He says he's going to give us what we need to be able to navigate our complicated world and confront the forces of sin that tell us to meet our needs by any way possible. Even if it means bypassing the commands of Jesus. What he says is if you trust in him, he will provide the strength that you need to remain faithful and endure. Even in the toughest moments, even in the the depths of temptation, he will be there giving you what you need. He sees all your needs and he says, I have bread for your needs. What else? He also says that I know that you are striving for an identity. And he says, church, I have the identity that you need. And the identity that I'm going to give you is not one that you have to strive for or guard or protect. It's given from my love for you. See, what we know is that the enemy specializes in identity theft, right? He wants you to, be, to forget who you are and whose you belong to. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a name, a name that the world can't take from you, right? The interesting thing about the, uh, getting a name from the world is they may call you a hero one day and a villain the next. But when you receive a name from Jesus, it's set in stone for eternity. It's eternally secure. Your feet are planted on the firm foundation of his kingdom. Gives you an identity. 
And what else? With that stone, he says there's a name on that stone that only him and the person who receives it will know. And there we get a picture of the intimacy that's provided to us in our relationship with him. The closeness that we get to have with him. Jesus says that 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 name will be so intimate that only he and the receiver will know. And it's the promise we see all throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament. What Jesus promises his followers is his abiding presence. His abiding presence no matter what comes, no matter what the season of life is. He says as we abide in him, as we remain in his word, he will tabernacle with us. He will be with us. That he will be with us through the ups, downs, all the seasons that are in between. That his presence goes with us. And he remains with his people forever. Even when we're wondering, God, where are you in this? What we can, if we're there and we're wondering that, we can be confident that his gracious purposes are always at work, even when it seems inactive. He's always at work in our lives. Even through the tough conversations that we need to have. Even through the tough seasons that we're going to go through. Even in the many, many deaths that we might take as we live for him. Experience the nearness of his abiding presence with us today. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I have the strength you need. I have the name you're looking for. And I'm going to be with you forever. I have what you need. And I know there are some of you today, as I say that, you're saying, Jesus, I need that. I need that in my life right now. Because maybe you'll, you, you'd say that because you're today you are grappling with sexual sin. You are grappling and struggling in this area. And here's what I want to make clear, is that God's grace is for you. God's grace is for you. Did you hear me, church? God's grace is for you. It's never too late to experience forgiveness. You haven't done something that is catching God totally off guard where he doesn't know what to do with you. No, he's that father on the road waiting for his child to come home, to embrace him, shower him with grace. There's the truth of grace, too. It's that we're not only saved by it, but we're sustained by it. We're kept by it. It empowers us to live for him. And so here's what I want to say clearly. I've been thinking about this and praying about this all week. Is that I know that when I used to sit and hear messages like this, what I would always do is try to turn down the volume button. Right? Turn down the volume on it. To go, this doesn't apply to me. Right? This is for someone else. I'm not really struggling that bad. Right? To downplay the words of Scripture. And here's what I want you to know is that there is an enemy who wants nothing more than for you to do just that. To do just that. To downplay. To mute the words that Jesus has to say to us. And he doesn't do that to make you feel better about yourself. He does that because it's his desire to destroy you. To steal your joy. To never actually see you experience health. But the invitation of Jesus... It's to come, it's to repent. It's not towards a shame, right, that pushes you out, 
but a shame that leads to repentance and draws you in. He wants you to experience freedom in this area, in this area that may have just been, may have just been a stronghold in your life for a very long time. It's his grace that saves you. It's his grace that strengthens you. We never get beyond the grace of God, and he has exactly what we need to be able to endure. Amen? Amen. And so here's what we need to do, church. Here's what all of us need to do, whether we're struggling or not in this area. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We need to keep our eyes fixed on him. Because the truth is, is where our eyes focus, our hearts will follow. And so we need to keep our eyes fixed on him, fixed on him more than the social media voices that are talking. It's fixed on him more than all the other voices that are talking. It's fixed on him and what his word has to tell us. And what we remember as we do that is we are worshiping Jesus, who what did he do? He fixed his eyes on us and he fixes his eyes on us so much so that he can speak specifically to the church in Pergamum. And he fixes his eyes on us as he has always done, right? As we look in the gospels, we see that he fixed his eyes on Jerusalem, going to Calvary, going to the cross for us because he loved us just that much, knowing the agony and shame that awaited him. He said, no, my eyes are fixed on my people because I desire to abide with them and for them to experience lifelong eternity, uh, eternal relationship with me forever. And so he kept his eyes fixed on us. And he remains wholly committed to us, never compromising. And so, as I've heard it said, it's the affluence of that God's love. It's the affluence of our God's love. That's the influence for our lives. It influences our obedience towards him, remembering how committed he is to us as his people. I really do believe, church, this is an area, when it comes to sexuality, this is really an area that we can represent kingdom of God that we belong to as believers. And as we do that, right, as we seek to do that, we can look to Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on him, remembering that he gives us what we need to endure, to remain faithful, and to live as his people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we... Thank you for your word today. Thank you, God, as we hear from your word, right, as we hear the, the, the ways that you encourage us and see us, we, we, we get a sense of your closeness. Mm. You are so near to us, Lord, that you can see our specific situations, our specific struggles, the specific ways we are just holding on, trying our best to fight, and you meet us there. And Lord, the, the, the beauty and love that comes from your challenge, Lord, because you love us far too much, Lord, to see sin have its way with us. We embrace it. And we say, God, we know that as we seek to endure, as we seek to remain faithful, God, you are with us. You're not ashamed of us, God, but you love us and you embrace us and you give us what we need to be able to overcome. So God, help us. We can't do this in our own strength. We wouldn't want to. We need you. And the good news is that you are with us. We with you. And so God, lead us in this area. Let us to love others well. 
Help us live lives, steward our bodies well, and honor you. We love you. Amen. Now I invite you to stand. We are going to get an opportunity to respond to our message today. We respond here in four ways. First way is through communion. And we remember the deep union that we have with Jesus as we come each week. Take of the bread, the wine, or the juice. Remember, He's with us and the call that we have as His people. Next way that we respond is through prayer. And like I said, if this is an area maybe where you're struggling or you know someone that's struggling, come forward to pray. Don't wallow or, or, or be silent in your shame. Come forward. And our prayer team would love to pray with and for you. The next way we respond is through giving. Right? In giving, right, we do exactly that. We remember how much God has given us. And we respond in overflowing love and gratitude by being generous. And so you can give online or we have given boxes in the back. And the last way we respond is through singing. Our God is worthy of all the praise. And so we sing out loud and worship to him. And so our band is going to continue singing, leading us in worship. And I invite you to respond as the Spirit leads. <laughs> 